Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. And I love that he doesn't say, you know that can't happen. There's something about when Jesus speaks to you, not just when people tell you about him, but when he connects with you personally, individually, where everything that would keep you from obeying him, listening to him, trusting him, it just is gone. today's broadcast, we have a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, Our Healing and Forgiving Lord. We're taken up in chapter 4 of the book of John, starting in verse 46, and we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 5. Jesus leaves Samaria and moves on to Galilee, where he heals the nobleman's son, and then on to Jerusalem, where he heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, and much, much more. So, let's get started. Jeremiah 17, 14 says, Heal me and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved, for you are my praise. And we've been tracking since chapter one of John, where we found Jesus to be the Son of God and God the Son, the creator of all things, the Word made flesh. Chapter two, we saw his first miracle that, that, changing of the water to wine at a wedding in Canaan. Chapters 3 and the first part of chapter 4, we had a contrast between two very different people, a very religious, spiritual ruler of Israel. His name was Nicodemus. And to him, Jesus said, Nick, you must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Nick was curious, but semi-clueless. He couldn't really figure out what Jesus was getting at. But anyway, Jesus left us with that, the need for every person to be born again, or there'll be no access to the Father and no heavenly destination. And then there was the woman at the well. Um, she was a Samaritan, unlike Nicodemus, who was Jewish. She was a Samaritan. She was an outcast. She'd been used and abused and cast off time after time after time. She meets Jesus, and Jesus promises her living water that will spring up within her, in her to everlasting life. The, the, the connecting point, of course, is, is that the kingdom of heaven is about everlasting life. And living water to that woman who was, was in need and knew it, well, that was a promise of everlasting life as well. Well, to her, Jesus said, when she changes the subject to the issue of her heart's greatest passion, and that was worship, those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Today, we see another series of contrasts, this time between a Gentile ruler with a dying son and a suffering Jewish man who had been, well, infirm for 38 years. And we're going to see, as always, Jesus deals with both of them, but in his own and perfect way. John 4, 46. So Jesus came to Cana of Galilee. He came again to Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he'd heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. 
Listen to the response of the nobleman. He says to Jesus, sir, come down before my child dies. He's not concerned with others' needs for signs or wonders or how they might be used to confirm Jesus' um, revelation of who he was and what he came to do. He has one singular concern. His son is dying. And he knows the doctors can't help him and he knows no one else can help him, but he knows that Jesus can. And he asked Jesus to do just that. Now, Jesus always answers our prayers. And this is him petitioning for his son. That's intercession. It's a fine and, and, and oft needed uh, form of prayer. And here's the thing. He always answers, but he doesn't always answer in the way we think he should. In fact, more often than not, we ask something of him. And you know, we've walked this road together. He can say yes. He can say no. He can say later. Or he can just say, hey, I got something so much better. That's what he says here. Not in, in those exact words, but Jesus just says to him, Go your way, your son lives. His idea was Jesus needed to come to him and lay his hands on him, pray for him, and then he would live. It's great faith in a great God. But Jesus can heal from a distance, and that's good news for us. Since he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and if we're praying for healing, well, he doesn't have to come down and lay his hands on us. We just need to ask him to do what only he can and to trust him to do the very best. Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. I love that. He believed and he demonstrated that he believed by going home to go see his, he believes, now living son. Then he inquired of them. Oh, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. How excited they must have been to share that good news. How excited we should be when we have good news. Anyway, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. The first time it says he believed, he was pointing out the fact that he trusted what Jesus was saying, that his son would survive because Jesus simply spoke the word. This time, though, we have a little bit of a different situation because this is believing unto salvation. Not just believing Jesus can heal, but believing in Jesus for life. And he believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he'd come out of Judea. Well, chapter 5 begins with Jesus heading up to a feast in Jerusalem. But in between those two, Jesus has to route down toward Jerusalem. And he passes through Nazareth, where he'd grown up and where everyone knew him. It doesn't say it here in John, but I want to share it with you because it sets the stage for the the intensity and the animosity that's beginning to brew. And so he goes home to Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue where he's well known. They give him the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls the scroll and begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he's anointed me. And he shares his mission statement in reading this scroll. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Many of you are aware at that point he rolled up the scroll. He, he stopped mid-sentence had he continued. Then it would have been the day of vengeance of our God. That's yet ahead. That, that's that season, the seven-year tribulation and last three and a half years of it, the great tribulation that will lead ultimately to his return and rule and reign in righteousness upon the earth. But he reads to them uh, what the father had sent him to do. So, so listen, this is our mission as well. We can't do it the way he did, but we can still do it. Preach the gospel to the poor. That's something all of us can do. We can't all heal. We can't all teach. We can't all, well, there's a lot of things we can't do, but there are some things we can and must do. Sharing the gospel is one of them. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. And you know, we're in a season, one year and two days ago, Paradise, well, you know, it burned to the ground. Nothing like that has ever happened in my lifetime, at least not here in California or even in the United States, to my knowledge. And what happened is so many people lost so much and the grieving was so great. But I've noticed the majority that we're aware of and have relationship with, and there are many. Those folks have found a way to, to take their eyes off of what was lost and focus their eyes on what was left and who was left. Because that's the key to overcoming such trauma, to, to experiencing such great loss. And most of us have and all of us will experience great loss, not just of property or stuff, not that I'm minimizing that. But most of us, if you're getting older as I am, have lost grandparents and parents. I've lost both. Some of us, as I have, lost a sibling. There are some of you who've lost children. And those losses, well, it's the same thing. You'll never get over them. You'll never wake up and just say, well, you know, not so bad. It's always bad. But you have the memory of them. And if they died in Christ, you have the hope of seeing them at the throne of God, of, of actually meeting them in the air and celebrating with them for that seven-year tribulation period on earth where it's big celebration in heaven for those who've gone to be with him. Well, all of that to say, Jesus is still in the business of healing broken hearts, proclaiming liberty to the captives. How many people today addicted to drugs. And you know the biggest addiction today isn't to illegal drugs, it's to legal drugs. But addiction is addiction. And if, if you know someone or you yourself can't get off of the stuff you're taking and you're like, well, I can't live without it. Well, I'm not trying to add any pain or shame to your suffering. But I'm saying if, if you're addicted to it, you need to find a way to get off of it. Find your doctor and, and talk to him about it. And, and if his whole solution to every problem is medication, find another doctor. Because God has something better in mind than a lifestyle of addiction to things that, that alter your consciousness and, and, and your spirit and your enthusiasm and every other part of you. 
Well, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. We'll get to see that in chapter 9. Not just those blind physically, but those blind spiritually. And to set at liberty the oppressed. Am I the only one? Does it seem like to anyone else that this is a season of serious oppression? That there's just, you know, I've been a lot of places in the world. I'm not super sensitive to such things, so I don't always realize what's going on. Pam, on the other hand, she's like, this is just so, so, there's something not right here. Something so oppressive about this place or this area or this community. And we've been all over. But I want to say there have been a couple times where I've been places and I just felt it so strong. And I feel like the attack on, on Jesus Church in our community at this season, it's like nothing I've ever experienced. Well, why such an attack now? Because there are so many people hurting and in need. And if he can get us caught up in our own drama, in our own confusion, on our own suffering, then we're not looking out to see the people around us. And, and here's why this is so important. If you're in Christ Jesus and he's in you, you're going to someday breathe your last here and you're going to open your eyes in the presence of God to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But there are billions of people on planet Earth and there are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands here in our community that don't have that assurance because they've never given their lives to the Lord. And many of them have never even heard that there's a God who loves them and gave his life for them so that they could live eternally with him. Well, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That was important. He was there to say, hey, this is the day. John said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It wasn't the fullness of what will come in the future, but the king was at hand, so his kingdom was being established. Well, anyway, all of that led to a, a minor crisis among them because they were amazed at the things Jesus had said to them because after reading his mission statement, he said, today these scriptures are fulfilled in your ears. And they were marveling and amazed. And then he began to talk about two people. He talked about a widow of Zarephath who Elijah had, had fed during a time of great famine. She happened to be a, a Gentile. Then he talked about Naaman the leper, a Syrian ruler, another Gentile, and how Elijah helped him. He was the only leper that was cleansed at that time. And the people were so upset. They were so just maddened by the fact that he's talking about Gentiles and as, as if Jesus cared for them and loved them always, that they took him out to the brow of the hill and they tried to push him over. Now, it couldn't work because he didn't come to die by falling off a cliff or being pushed off a cliff. He came to die on a cross for your sins and mine. But I would have loved to be there and see. It says he just walked through the midst of them. How exactly does that work when an angry mob has you surrounded and they're pushing you toward the cliff? You just turn around and say, OK, I'll see you fellas later. And anyway, he just walks through and takes off. All of that, and I know it's a little lengthy, but it sets the stage for the conflict that lies ahead. Because these guys, the religious leaders, especially of Israel, had in their mind that they were God's only chosen people. Somehow they missed the memo that all nations were going to be blessed through Abraham and through his seed, which is singular, his seed being Jesus. And so not just Israel chosen to be a witness to the world. 
but not to exclude the world around them. Well, that brings us to uh, John 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. That's a telling statement, by the way. It's subtle, but sad. These had been previously called the feast of the Lord. And at this point, they're going through the motions. They're still feasting. They're still sacrificing. They're still celebrating. They're still worshiping. But something had changed in their hearts and in their motivation, like the Ephesians Jesus speaks to in Revelation in those first chapters. They had left their first love. They're doing the right thing. They're going to the right place. But they're not doing it with a passion and a heart for the God who drew them there. There's a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever diseases he had. Listen, Jesus, the Lamb of God, right there at the sheep gate where the sheep that would be sacrificed at the feast would pass through. It's a fitting picture. But there's something more. Bethesda is called the house of mercy, or it literally means house of mercy. It's right there next to St. Anne's Church today. If you ever get to Israel with or without us, you have to go into St. Anne's. Here's why. There's nowhere I've ever been where worship, you know, just acapella is more beautiful, more engaging. People from all nations are gathered together there. We'll go in and I always start, if no one's singing, I just start singing hallelujah, hallelujah. And do you know that that that's one word that's the same in every language. They don't all pronounce it exactly the same, and I won't mess around with that right now because it's too important for me to goof on it. But, but the, the, the bottom line is all these people, you just start singing, and all of a sudden over here you sing, and people, strong you know, accent, uh, and, and then over here people with another strong accent, but we're all at, at one point just worshiping and singing hallelujah. Well, right outside of St. Anne's, there are two things. There's a little area where we always teach. And then over to the other side, down below, they've excavated and they found this pool and these five porches. Actually, two pools are there, a larger one and a smaller one. But, but the, 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 the porches are all there. So the scene is like surreal. You're looking at something that, that is the very place where this event and these events took place. Well, five porches, great multitude of people of every type of suffering person. And they had been there, many for a very long time. And, and so that the, the common understanding was the water's going to stir, that an angel is going to come down and stir it. At least that's what they believed. And, and when, whoever stepped in at that point would be healed of his disease, whatever he had. Well, it's a heartbreaking scene because this multitude was, well, in varying degrees, finding it impossible to be first. And Jesus comes up to this guy and he had been in that situation. Well, we read it in, in verse five. A certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. It doesn't tell us what the infirmity was. 
It just tells us how long he had suffered. And the bottom line is, whatever he was suffering from didn't allow him to jump up and get into the water. And so when the water stirred, his hope welled up in his heart as it did in so many others. And then there was a competition. There was no, hey, you first. Everybody needed healing. And they're like, hey, this is my time. This is my place. But bottom line, he was never going to get in. And he'd come to that realization. So Jesus comes to him. He's been there for, well, he's had the infirmity 38 years. It doesn't say how long he'd been there. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew he'd already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made whole? That's the, the heart of it. Because the word well suggests sickness. Not everyone was sick. Some were blind. So wholeness would, would well, and that's what King James actually translated this. The idea being, if you're blind, you're going to be able to see. If you're deaf, you're going to be able to hear. If you're oppressed, you're going to be set free. If, if you're infirm, you're going to be able to walk and run and work. And listen, that's exactly what Jesus just read, and that's why I shared it with you. When he was in Nazareth, here's what I've come to do. They're looking to the water, but the Son of God is standing before one man and that great crowd of suffering people. The sick man answered him. And I want to say I've heard this in so many different forms. Not read it in many. I've, I've seen some different translations of it. But I have heard the same response so many times from so many people in so many different ways. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. You'd expect if you'd been suffering for 38 years and somebody came and says, hey, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be free? Do you want to be fixed? That, that you'd go, absolutely. But this guy's lost all hope. And instead of saying yes, he begins to explain to Jesus why that hasn't happened, why it isn't happening, and why he's given up hope that it's going to happen. He still gets up and makes an effort, but he realizes, I'll never get down there in time. I'll never be first. So here's the interesting thing. Jesus simply says to him, as he said to the nobleman, hey, your son's well, just go home, everything's good. He says to this man that um, to rise, take up your bed and walk. All it took after 38 years of suffering was a command from the Lord to do the impossible. And I love that he doesn't say, you know, that can't happen. There's something about when Jesus speaks to you, not just when people tell you about him, but when he connects with you personally, individually, where everything that would keep you from obeying him, listening to him, trusting him, it just is gone. So, so he says, rise, take up your bed and walk, and immediately, the impossible became possible and the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Pastor Sam talked about how the crippled man at the pool in Bethesda had lost all of his hope. Now hope is a crazy thing. If you think about it, we don't ever really need hope until there is something that we want or need that is beyond our strength or ability to make happen. 
But then what, or who exactly, if not Jesus Christ, do we place our hope in? Good luck? Fortune? Now, I don't mean to be a downer or anything, but there really is no such thing. In Matthew 10:28, Jesus tells us to not fear circumstances because circumstances cannot destroy our souls. He goes on to say, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? He's saying they're not very valuable, yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Place your hope not in the outcome of things or circumstances. Place your hope in Jesus. And even if he does not bring about what you may have hoped for, what he brings will always be better than anything you could have ever hoped for. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.